Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He's a former congressman. His name is Jason Altmeyer, and he wrote a book back in 2017. The title of the book is Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America and What We Can Do About It. And Congressman Altmeyer served three terms in the United States House of Representatives from 2007 to 2013. And during his time in office, the nonpartisan National Journal calculated Altmeyer's voting record to be at the exact midpoint of the House, or the dead center, that's the title, giving him the most centrist voting record in Congress. So he had a, a very interesting time. This is a first-person account of his time in Congress, so he has a lot of wisdom and experience he can share and apply to really current situation in the United States in 2021. So Jason Altmeyer, are you there? I am. Thank you, William, for having me on. Looking awesome. forward to the conversation. Likewise. So for people who may not have heard your name, can you talk about your background, what part of the country you're from, and how you got involved in politics and what led to your um, entrance into Congress in 2007? I'm a business guy by background. I did have the foray into politics. Uh, it was sort of a Mr. Smith experience, you know, which is kind of, I think, interesting for people in, in reading the book. Uh, I come from a healthcare background, primarily have worked as a senior executive in both the hospital and health insurance industry. And in between those two stints, I served three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2007 to 2013. And I ran because for Congress because I felt like we needed voices from the center. We needed folks who were willing to compromise and negotiate and actually get things done instead of pointing fingers and casting blame. So I had that experience. I, I practiced what I preached, which, is, as you mentioned, the National Journal, which is a nonpartisan publication, at the end of each session of Congress, ranks each member of Congress from one to 435 House members, one being the most liberal, 435 being the most conservative. My voting record placed me at number 218, which, as you mentioned, is the exact middle, midpoint of the House. So I work with both sides. I voted about half the time on significant issues with Democrats, about half the time with Republicans, and uh, had a very good experience. And in the book, I, I tell the story about what it's like to be a centrist in the current polarized environment. But I think more importantly, it has a lot of academic research in their studies related to how partisans think, how they react in different circumstances, group dynamics forcing people to the extreme, the role of social media and uh, the cable news and, and uh, things like that on, on the thought process of people, the idea of the algorithms that sort information, how they uh, filter out to partisans and how a partisan, for example, reacts when they are proven wrong, when you provide them with evidence that conclusively shows their point of view is just factually inaccurate how they react. So with those studies, I kind of translate that into the real world experience of what it's like to be a centrist in today's Congress. Right. And you, uh, I mean, even your interests, you came in on a wave of a lot of kind of centrist or moderates and were not really expected. I mean, according to what you said in the book, your, your initial interest in getting into Congress was not, uh, it didn't look like a simple ride. Is that correct? I ran against an incumbent. Yeah, somebody who was popular, had won her previous two races by about 30 points each. 
I was a Democrat, again, a centrist, but I, I ran as a Democrat in a pretty Republican-leaning district. President Bush had won the district by nine points the cycle before I ran, and President Obama ended up losing the district uh, while I was in office by 11 points. And in that same election, I, as a Democrat, won the seat by 12 points. So I think I showed that I could translate, my message translated across party lines, which again is interesting in the current environment when you are strongly discouraged from working with the other side. If you're a member of Congress who's labeled as being willing to compromise, that's viewed by many as a weakness, as somebody who doesn't have a backbone, you're not willing to stand up for the party simply because you're willing to cross the aisle and, and uh, think about issues in a bipartisan way. And uh, that, I think, is one of the most unfortunate aspects of the current Congress is both sides uh, strongly discourage their own members from working with the other party. And can you talk about that, what that experience was like being in Congress and what the dynamics were to prevent compromise? Because uh, there's a lot of factors involved with that. I think about, uh, in the book, I reference a Pew Research Center survey of Americans. And it wasn't just a political survey. It was just a survey of the way Americans think and, and different issues. And what they found is about 30% of Americans identify as being on the political extremes. 16% on the left, 15% on the right, 31%. So by definition, that means almost 70% of Americans are not on the extreme. They're in the middle. So a question I get asked when I speak about these topics is why is there so much partisanship in Washington? Because most Americans want a Congress that can work together, compromise and, and negotiate and get along. So why is Congress not representative of that viewpoint? Well, it's pretty simple. That Pew Research Center also showed that that 30% of America that's on the polar extremes of our, of our political system, they work on campaigns, they contribute financially to candidates, and most importantly, they vote in primary elections at more than double the rate of everybody else. So they have disproportionate influence on our electoral process, especially in primary elections. So if you are somebody in Congress and you want to keep your seat, you want to appeal to the people who determine your fate. And the people who determine the outcome of elections are the people disproportionately who occupy the polar extremes of our political system. So that's why members of Congress do not reflect the viewpoints of their, their own districts. And in fact, research has shown that members of Congress are much more likely to vote with the views of the people who are their political contributors than the majority view on issues of the people that they represent within their own congressional districts. Right. And you say state that in your book, there's a differentiation or contrast between these people at the, in the home areas of where the congressmen are and what's happening in Washington. And you also state that the moderates aren't as politically active as these kind of radicals or more fringe characters on both sides of the party. You also talk about how even what's surprising to me is even members of your own party will threaten you. Can you talk about how they tried to intimidate centrists even within the Democratic Party in your experience? Yeah, I have a good anecdote in the book. In fact, I open up the book with this, that 
Uh, I was at one of these public town halls uh, outside a grocery store in my district. And you know, there were a couple dozen people there, not a huge group. But of course, the people who show up on a Saturday morning to go to an event like that are the people who are politically interested. I represented a district um, that had uh, a pretty solid lean, uh, Republican lean in some parts of the districts. There were other parts of the district that were overwhelmingly democratic. So it really mattered what part of the district I was in. And I tell the story of a town meeting that I had kind of in the middle of those two areas. So I knew I was gonna get people from both sides. And as often happens, as soon as I started the meeting, the cameras went up in the crowd. So somebody had a handheld video camera and I was used to it because they're trying to record what you're saying and, and use it in a social media post or a campaign commercial. And then as I was talking, I noticed a second camera went up, a different person. And I assumed in my mind that they were, again, I was a Democrat. They were both working for Republicans. But I could tell, uh, based upon the reaction to the things I was saying, that one of them was a Republican and one of them was a Democrat. And somebody asked a question during the Q&A about uh, you know, how they, they were a Democrat and how disappointed they were in my voting record that I voted with Republicans. And uh, they felt like I was really just a Republican in Democrat clothing. And uh, as they said that, a woman just shrieked and she turned towards that person and said, what do you mean that everybody knows he's just a lapdog for Nancy Pelosi? And then they turned towards each other and started to scream at each other um, both claiming that I was a traitor to their own cause, uh, that I was on the opposite side. So, and of course, the rest of the crowd started to laugh. And I, I just think that is the perfect anecdote for somebody. When you try to be in the middle, people don't remember the times you were for them. They only remember the times you were against them, which in my case was about half the time right. for both parties. So it's very difficult to survive politically in a district where that becomes your reputation. Right. And like the, you said, there was like outright things. There's a club for growth that was on the right. And then we will replace you.org. So there's even elements within both parties that if you don't, if you're too much compromises treason, if you talk too much to the other people, we're going to get a hardliner in, right? That's exactly right. And I speak about these topics around the country. And I remember, you know, the, now that you say this, it's funny. Uh, recently, I was speaking at the University of Florida. And I had somebody approach me uh, afterwards and we sat down and talked and, and he um, runs or ran, I don't know if it's still in operation, but uh, you know, he ran a website um, called Fire Your Congressman. And his, his idea was that they would go into competitive districts all around the country, regardless of party. And he believed that we just needed to turn over the people who were in Congress. And he was telling me, you know, his idea, we'd love, he was saying to me, we'd love for you to run in the district uh, that, that you run in. Uh, we, don't, we don't like this current congressman who's there. And I said, well, A, I, I kind of like the congressman who's there and I'm not interested in doing that. But I have a question for you. Let's say I did run and I won and now I'm your congressman, but your organization is fire your congressman. What, what, what would be your, your point of view towards me at that point? And he said, well, then we'd have to take you out. And I said, well, I, I don't find that to be appealing, but um, that just goes to show you that, you know, you're going to run into all kinds on the campaign trail. When you talk to political activists, 
they're going to come with their point of view. But most often, it's my experience just personally in having been a politician and represented uh, a equally divided district. But the research also shows that most people do not think about politics on a daily basis. They're worried about who their college alma mater is going to play on the football field this week, what time church starts on Sunday, what their activities are for their children or what their work schedule looks like. And I have found that the people who think about politics on a daily basis, who wake up wondering what their congressman is going to do in Washington, they more often than not have an unhealthy obsession with politics. And they come from a viewpoint from the extreme. And here again, if you're trying to represent the center, if you're trying to be moderate and compromise and get along, it's going to be very difficult to win the support of those kind of people. And unfortunately, those are exactly the people who vote disproportionately in primaries and contribute to candidates. So the reason we have such a polarized Congress and uh, political system today is specifically because those are the people who determine the outcome of elections. Right. I mean, and you you definitely encourage more voter activity from the populace of America in general. And I think that something's really going to change, hopefully soon, that more people really do kind of take note. You mentioned that uh, I think it was James Madison and Alexander Hamilton warned in the Federalist Papers about factions. Can you kind of expand upon how this factionalization has become entrenched in D.C.? Boy, were they ever proven right. Uh, you know, and Washington, of course, spoke about it as well in his farewell address very famously. And uh, we have evolved into a two-party system, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is we've evolved in a way now that we view the other party as the enemy, uh, as though instead of we're all Americans, we have different points of view. And looking at it in the same way that you would sit at the bar, maybe arguing about your favorite sports team. Um, you actually view somebody who's of the other political party as somebody who does not have the best interest of the country at heart. And when you believe that, and when you surround yourself with people who think exactly like you do, and when your social media feed is filled with people who come from the same viewpoint, you don't have an understanding that there are people with legitimate concerns, with legitimate differences of opinion. And if you're a member of Congress, approximately 380 of the 435 congressional seats in the country today are drawn in a way that they're overwhelmingly partisan, solidly blue or solidly red. So when those members of Congress go to Capitol Hill and they see a colleague who comes from a different type of district that holds a different point of view, it's astounding to that member because they've never seen anyone in their own district that believes that. They don't know anybody who holds that same point of view. So therefore, this other person must be out of touch or crazy um, because districts are drawn in a way that you're just not exposed to those other points of view. And again, your social media feed, your Facebook page, it's filled with people who think exactly like you do. It makes you more willing to believe that anyone who has a different viewpoint is either crazy or ill-informed or just uh, out of touch with reality. And that makes it very difficult for any type of negotiation to go on in the political system. And you also mentioned the media is also very important. So it's not just social media, but the media too. Can you talk about how the current media offerings have also enhanced polarization? 
I have a really good study in the book about these newspapers. Of course, print newspapers have been going out of business across the country. Some have discontinued print and still have an online presence. Some of the newspapers have just gone out of business completely. And in Denver, Seattle, and Cincinnati, when their print newspapers went out of business, the voting participation of citizens in those cities went down because they weren't exposed to news uh, as much as they were before. I talk about how uh, for a certain generation of Americans, uh, when you think of the evening news, uh, the early 1980s, you, you had a choice between John Chancellor, Walter Cronkite, or David Brinkley on your evening news. And uh, you, know, you didn't have 300 cable channels to choose from. And if you wanted to watch Wheel of Fortune at seven o'clock, you had to sit through the evening news at 6.30. And the voting record and the voting participation was much higher back then in regular elections, non-presidential years, because people were exposed to news and you know, sort of a non-biased political viewpoint, whether they wanted it or not, they had to sit through it. Now, if you're not interested in politics, you're gonna watch the Kardashians or sports or the Home and Garden Network or, or Netflix, whatever it might be. You're never exposed to news and you're not gonna vote. You're not gonna have an interest. And again, as we've said, that leaves the voting participation to people on the extremes. So to the degree that people are interested in politics, they're watching Fox or MSNBC on a really good night, even today, on a really good night for those networks, there might be 3 million viewers watching Fox's evening lineup or MSNBC, Rachel Maddow. Approximately 3 million folks will watch those shows. We're a nation of 230 million voters voting age citizens. So those 3 million people are clearly not representative of the country as a whole. But again, they're the ones who are politically active. They're the ones who are driven to action by what they're seeing on the TV. And that helps stir the partisanship that we see every day. And you also kind of add in your book, another element was kind of the ignorance of the American populace about the political system. I had another guest on, we're talking about kind of local politics and how people should get involved in that. I mean, some of the statistics are pretty scary. Can you talk about that? I, I love that. I think that's my favorite section of the book. I talk about these surveys of Americans that demonstrate how ill-informed most Americans are about just everyday history and civics and politics. And for example, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia did a nationwide survey of Americans uh, about the revolutionary period. And the first question was, do you think you could pass a, a quiz about standard issues related to the American Revolution? Just factual answers. And 89% of the people said, yes, I absolutely could. And then they were given the test, regular questions about the revolution. 83% failed to get even half the questions right. Uh, there was a survey uh, that was done of Americans where they showed 75% of Americans don't know how many U.S. senators there are. Uh, they don't know how long a U.S. senator's term is, more than three quarters of Americans. Uh, that same survey showed that half of Americans could not say in a, just a yes or no question correctly that Herbert Hoover was a United States president. About half the respondents said no, he was not. Twice as many Americans can name two characters on the Simpsons program 
rather than two rights guaranteed under the First Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, C-SPAN did, did a survey of Americans on the Supreme Court where they asked over a thousand people to name as many members of the Supreme Court as they could. And half of Americans could only name one or zero members of the Supreme Court. And of that survey of over a thousand people, none, zero, could name all nine. Now, there are certainly some in America who can name all nine Supreme Court justices, but it, it, in this survey, none could, could rank all nine. And this has a public policy implication because you also find in research that the people who know the least about a subject are often the people who have the most confidence in their own opinion. And this is what you run into in politics. I think my favorite study of, of the dozens of studies I talk about in the book is a University of Illinois study on welfare reform, which had really difficult questions. And it was the same deal. The first question was, do you think you could pass a, question, uh, a, a survey of the basics of welfare in the country? And the people who said yes were the people who scored the, the worst on the test. And the test was, uh, how long can you be on welfare? What's the income threshold to qualify? How many members of your family can be on it? How, how many years can you be on welfare programs before you're kicked off? Really difficult questions that most people would not know. So it's not a surprise that only 3% of the people who took that test got even half the questions right. But what the, you know, what the conclusion was of the authors, which showed the people who scored the worst on that test were the people who were most confident that they knew the most about the subject, which they knew nothing about. And unfortunately, in politics, those are also the people that are driving the politicians towards the extreme. Right. And I mean, one of the great aspects of the book is how many social science experiments and things about people and their decision making are in the book. One of the fascinating one was the one done by Yale University law professor Dan Cahan and how people even with, I mean, maybe you can talk more about that, but even when they're applied with terms that they, they will not accept factual things that are presented in front of them if their biases are that strong. Maybe you can explain that in greater detail. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of research that was done about how you change somebody's mind, especially somebody who's just factually incorrect about their viewpoints. And there, there was a lot of interesting ones, but um, I think the most interesting was the people who you confront with this evidence. Here's the facts about this issue that you feel so strongly about. Your opinion is just factually incorrect people are more likely to dig in rather than come over to your side and say, oh, you know what, I never thought about it that way. Uh, I, I agree, you're right. That doesn't happen. Pe people are more likely to become more entrenched in their wrong viewpoint because they don't like the fact that they're being challenged. And um, there was talk about how you can change somebody's mind. The only two ways uh, where research has shown partisans will change their mind. One is if somebody from their own political ideology, somebody who they trust, changes their position. So if somebody on Fox News comes out and tells a Republican audience, uh, we've actually reconsidered this, this issue, here's some news you might think about, that's going to have an influence 
on that population, of course, much differently than if the New York Times were to come out to that same audience and make that same case. But I think a really interesting one was they gave people who were self-identified as, as partisan information to read about issues. And they found if they changed the font, just the size and the, the, the look of the font and made it more difficult to read, people had to stop and take a step back and maybe read something two or three times and really think about what they were reading. And they found that folks at the end of that were more likely to consider other points of view than if it was regular font and they just breezed their way through it because they're probably thinking about other things they've already made up their mind. So uh, I don't know exactly how to translate that into politics, but it's very interesting that if you can force someone to step back and really think about the arguments that they're hearing on the other side, it does make a difference in their willingness to accept other points of view. Right. So, I mean, I really think it's important. Like so a lot of these people are definitely call it an echo chamber. I would say it's almost a wind tunnel of their own. It's like a reflection of their own from both the right and the left, I would say. And you actually there were some studies you said where people are actually getting dopamine rushes from some of these uh, their involvement in these groups. Like they're literally getting a kind of a Pavlovian response or something like that. Right. Yeah, partisanship gives you a hit of dopamine. Uh, they put people, this is a really interesting study too, they put people under an MRI and they studied their brain waves while they were viewing political material. And they found that uh, they used interesting setups so that uh, they showed a politician who was of the same mindset of the person under the MRI and they show them in a really bad position. Um, just make it a statement that doesn't make sense doesn't have factual evidence, really makes them look bad, and they study the brain waves, and then they show the same scenario with the opposing politician in the bad position. And the person under the MRI in that case is gleeful. They're happy that the other person has made these statements, um, you know, often misstatements. And then they show the evolution of what happens. Then the person apologizes and maybe even changes their point of view at the end. And the way the brain reacts as these different things are happening. And what it does show is when your political affiliation looks good and when your opponent is being damaged politically by statements that they're making, your brain will give you a hit of dopamine um, because you're just so joyful that the other side has been politically damaged. Yeah, no, it is. And also it's interesting because there's so much external partisanship but you actually talk about your experiences in Washington kind of as like the wolf and the sheepdog from cartoons. So do you, can you kind of explain how that how that happened in real time, but the kind of perceptions are different? I love that example. And what you're referring to, if you have watched the Looney Tunes uh, back in the day, you'll remember that there was a, a, a character who, who was a sheepdog. Uh, I think his name was Sam. And uh, there was there was a wolf who, of course, wanted to eat the sheep and the wolf and, and the sheepdog who was to, to protect the sheep would walk together to the office, which was this big pasture. And they would clock in together. They would show their clock and they would have this cordial conversation. And then once they clocked in they would fight against each other and they would show these outrageous, you know, physical confrontations that they have. They would beat the heck out of each other. And then the whistle would go off 
And then they would both walk out together and put their arm across each other and clock out and say, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And in a way, Congress can be like that. Um, there are certainly people who don't like the other side, who, who view the other the opposing party as the enemy. There are people in Congress who get along with one another, who, who you know, are in the middle and would like to have that type of relationship where uh, in, in intra-party, in inter-party uh, co confrontation becomes having dinner together, becomes going bowling together, you know, having family outings together. Sometimes your kids go to school together for those members from the West Coast that their families live in Washington. And I don't think the public sees that part. Uh, to a lot of people, it's a game, um, just making the other side look bad. How can we benefit politically by what the news of the day is? But for a lot of people in Washington, it's like that wolf and sheepdog where you do political battle in the day, but at night um, you do have conversations. But because of these issues that we're talking about, because to appeal to voters and win your election, you can't give the appearance of working together. You, you can't show that you're talking about compromise. That personal relationship that you have of trust and you know your family's uh, having dinner together and getting to know one another, you can't show that publicly because you're you're discouraged and they will run a primary against you. So I think we need to find a way to translate those relationships that do occur between the parties and between the individuals that serve together and, and share this common experience of being in the House of Representatives and the Senate and translate that into allowing them to publicly work together and not be penalized for it. Right. And you always just see on the media, you're just bombarded with groups. It's always either the Democrats or the Republican in front of a mic. And you never, you very rarely see bipartisanship displayed on anything. It's always, we're out in front of the Congress arguing about this. But you had some successes while you were in Congress with the Omnibus uh, Public Land Management Act. That was a bipartisan bill, correct? Yeah, that was a bill uh, that was very interesting. There had been several sessions of Congress that actually spanned two different presidential administrations where um, it was hundreds of millions of acres of federal lands. And uh, to, the, to that time, it's been surpassed since, but to the time it was the largest bill relating to federal public lands that had ever been passed in Congress. And uh, there kept being holdups due to partisan issues. So I brought together groups that didn't normally get along, uh, for example, gun groups like the NRA and, you know, and uh, gun owners against crime and brought them together with some environmental groups and some groups interested in uh, talking about climate policy and so forth and brought them to the table together, offered an amendment to resolve some of the issues that were at disagreement there. The amendment passed and the bill ended up passing. And I, I use it in the book as just an example of you really can make a difference if you can bring people to the table that on the surface don't appear to trust one another, don't often work together and have been critical of each other. If you can get them in the same room and uh, get them to think through you know, what we need to do to solve this problem, you can work things out. But again, uh, in politics too often, you're discouraged from doing that. Right. And I mean, a lot of people may not know, but so many bills do not get uh, passed just due to partisanship. So there's really some of the gridlock is 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 happening because of that. And you said, and you kind of came in 2007 with people that other people, you know, that might be familiar names, Keith Ellison, Gillibrand, Giffords, McCarthy, who's still around, Heath Schuler. 
Yeah. But a lot of your and you were involved a lot with Obama, things that were happening in 2008. But your kind of moderates all came in and you said that of the 15, I think that they're they're all out of Congress now. Is that correct? Yeah, we had uh, in that class I came in with, there were some pretty high profile people. Kevin McCarthy was one of them. Gabrielle Giffords, Kirsten Gillibrand, Chris Murphy, who are in the Senate now, a uh, number of others. And uh, what you find is that group that came in was driven largely by a wave of independent voters who switched sides, who had voted Republican before, switched to Democrats. So these were moderate centrists. And from the first day in office, we all came together. We were told by our leadership and, and other Democratic constituencies like uh, the labor unions, for example, and, and um, you know, left wing groups that, uh, you know, this idea of bipartisanship just set that to the side. That's not what we're doing here. You're going to be expected to support the party. And as often happens in, in elections like that, uh, the folks who came in driven by the wave of independence uh, eventually were washed out by that same wave on the other side because the, the party in power went too far. And you see that when both Democrats and Republicans have had the opportunity to control all levers of government, both the Congress and the White House in the same party hands, more often than not, they will push the envelope too far. And that pendulum then swings back to the other side because the American people, that's not what they had in mind. What they had in mind was people working together and compromising rather than just one party pushing forward in a way that's a little bit beyond what the comfort level of the American voter is. And so, I mean, what, what, uh, how do you apply this book to the present and what do you advise to the public to make this change and get past this polarization? I think the main thing we could do, if I was to choose one realistic way that we could change the partisanship and polarization in this country is to change the way we do primaries. And you hear some talk today about ranked choice voting, about open primaries. Uh, and in both of those scenarios, all candidates, regardless of party affiliation, are on the same ballot together in the primary. Republicans, Democrats, Greens, Independents, Reform Party, whatever it might be, they're all on the same ballot. And subsequently, all voters, regardless of party affiliation, show up in that same primary and they vote. And in a ranked choice system, you know, they rank them from, let's say, there's six candidates from one to six. And in an open primary, the top two uh, or some would say top four maybe would go on to the general election. Uh, and then the idea there is that neutralizes the power of the extremes. Because when you have a closed primary system, as I've described, when the people who are the most polarizing voters our nation has to offer vote at twice the rate of everybody else, they have disproportionate influence. And if you're on the ballot, you know to win, you have to appeal to the far extremes within your own party. But if you're in a primary that's an open primary where all voters are voting, regardless of the mechanism, how those votes are counted, if you want to win and you only appeal to your own narrow partisan base in that type of system, that's not a formula for success. You're going to be defeated. To win, you're going to have to appeal not just to your own base, but to more moderate voters within your own party, to independents in the center, and even to voters on the other side. 
And I think, uh, you know, in Maine, you saw that with Susan Collins, Senator Collins. You know, she was polling behind. She was viewed to be very vulnerable as a candidate. But what ended up happening in the ranked choice system was the folks who had her ranked second, uh, maybe had a, a preferred candidate from the left or the right, Susan Collins was their second choice. And, and what ended up happening in, in that is that she ended up being the preferred choice of a majority of voters in Maine. Uh, you've seen that in other races too. And in open primaries, Louisiana and California have those systems. You find that the, the candidates who win are more willing to work together. Their rhetoric changes, uh, the way they speak about issues, their voting records change and become more moderate. So that's how you solve the problem. You give a greater voice to people in the center and you give cover to politicians who are willing to compromise and negotiate and be viewed as a centrist. Instead of being penalized for it, you're rewarded for it at the ballot box. Right. It makes much more sense. And that primary is happening. I think the AOC won with like 19,000 votes, like nothing, like not even in an open. It's, it kind of frustrates the purposes of a democratic system where all the people are voting to have this primary system with a limited amount of people. It's actually anti competitive and anti-democratic in my opinion it, what else what else do you would you recommend other than the primary kind of uh, system what I mean what in addition to that could help kind of well, cer certainly campaign finance reform would help uh, money drives political outcomes and unfortunately money comes disproportionately from people on the political extremes um, political action committees which are business, um, the PACs that you hear about, not the super PACs that come in and kind of airdrop millions of dollars on a race uncoordinated with campaigns. Political action committees, their giving is more about good government and about access for that, for that business. And it's not about partisanship necessarily, but individual giving, individual donors, largely driven by these low dollar amount donors over the internet, uh, that Senator Sanders, for example, Bernie Sanders, was was able to generate and, and get a following. That money's partisan money, right? So, so that's going to draw people to the political extreme. So, if we could find a way to limit the influence of money, there is a constitutional issue because money has been equated to free speech by the Supreme Court. So, it's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, similarly, uh, we've talked about the influence of social media and these algorithms that people have, uh, whether it be a YouTube video or your Facebook feed. And uh, if, if you watch, for example, on Facebook, a feed that says 9-11 was an inside job or that uh, you know, the Kennedy assassination was, was uh, you know, fake or, or, the, or the moon landing was done in a studio, you can find videos that say that. They're obviously wrong. Um, but if you watch one of them, then you watch your recommended videos on the right, about half of them are going to be about the same thing. But the problem is if you watch a second video, now all of your recommendations on the right side of your screen are going to be about those conspiracy theories. And your Facebook algorithms, the same thing, your Twitter feed, the more you click on things that are just factually incorrect, in many cases ridiculous, the more often they're going to show you that content. So if we can have a way to change that, we're seeing it. I don't want to get into the politics of vaccines and so forth, but you're seeing it with, with that 
in real time um, where just disinformation is spread and, and people believe it and, and they're making decisions based upon things that uh, are, just, are just incorrect. So to the degree we can improve the quality of the news people are exposed to, that would make a big difference with um, voter participation and good governance. I agree. I mean, people have to kind of walk, get out of their ruts of their standard media fare and be challenged by some different ideas, in my opinion. Get off the TV, try some other things. Uh, really fantastic book, really great insights, really from a first-person perspective. If somebody in D.C., where's the best place to get the book dead center? I think any of your online uh, book retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, anything like that. If you just go on Amazon, search Dead Center, you can search my name, Jason Altmeyer. You see it there in front of you. Um, you can get the book anywhere. And it's, it's sold really well. You know, We did all the shows and uh, really did get a, a good following because it, it's so topical for what you see happening in Washington today. So I would really recommend it for anybody. And I you can reach me through social media and my website, which is also my name. Would love to continue the conversation with any readers or listeners to this podcast. Uh, just love talking about these issues. And I appreciate the opportunity to join you today, William. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. What can you say your website? Is it Jason Altmeyer, all one word? or? Yeah, it's jasonaltmeyer.com. So you see the book uh, there in front of you if you're on video. But uh, Altmeyer spelled A-L-T-M-I-R-E. And uh, again, just if you just search Dead Center book, it comes up and uh, love to interact with folks who uh, read the book and want to talk more about it. So if people want to send you a con some email, the best place is your website, correct? Absolutely. Yep, yeah, awesome. it goes right to me. Awesome. Again, the title of the book is Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America and What We Can Do About It by former Congressman Jason Altmeyer. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. Glad to do it. All right. Take care. All right. Stay there. I'm going to turn this off.